All right. Good morning, church. It's uh, great to be with you all virtually again uh, this week. We're hopeful um, that as we continue to uh, be patient on uh, getting some of these questions answered in regards to um, our, our meeting place at Warren Hills Elementary School, that uh, this potentially could be our last virtual service. Uh, they did have a meeting specifically uh, around um, amending their timeline uh, to open up facility usage uh, earlier than the end of May. Uh, so we're hopeful that we'll we'll get word back this week and and we can get back to our normal schedule. But regardless, uh, we'll continue to trust the Lord and, and provide uh, this virtual outlet, uh, no matter what what happens. But please, if you would continue to be in prayer with us uh, concerning that matter, that the Lord would uh, show us grace and uh, be able to meet face to face once again as the body of Christ. Uh, again, I, I know we probably said it every single week, but we truly do long uh, for that day uh, to happen once again. Uh, but here we are uh, in Genesis chapter number 26. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can you can turn with me there. Uh, the title of this morning's message is God's Faithfulness to Isaac. Uh, God's Faithfulness to Isaac. And uh, it's, it's interesting uh, as you think about um, you often observe things in your your parents. Um, you know, it could be uh, something serious, uh, such as a sin habit. Um, maybe you uh, observe in them some type of inconsistency in their parenting, whether that's perceived or otherwise from the perspective of a child. Um, maybe it's something as simple as a character flaw or something that uh, just might annoy you some some. Uh, some way, shape, or form. And as you reflect back on that, you've probably said something, and, and this is in the spirit of ignorance because uh, we know it, it lacks wisdom, but we, we typically will make a statement uh, uh, to ourselves more, more often that when I'm a parent, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not going to do that, or I'm not going to act like that, or I'm not going to interact with my child in that way. I'm sure at, at one time in your life, you probably felt that um, a, as a reality. Um, you know, see, we see this idea in Scripture, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament, this idea of the sins of the father being passed on to the next generation. I'm sure you're familiar with that concept in Scripture. And uh, pragmatically speaking, and certainly not um, a, a universal truth, but oftentimes, uh, there are blind spots um, in, in my life as a parent and also in, in the life of, of my parents. Um, and those blind spots will often revisit themselves uh, by way of us picking up on those bad habits or by way of us having uh, the same point of failure, um, addictions. Um, um, interestingly enough, often will find themselves revisiting from generation to generation. Uh, in, in many ways, uh, we'll, we'll see that, that happen. But uh, we know that this often happens. It's not universal, but, it, but we do see it true in this world that we live in. Why is that? It's because um, our sin nature is a universal reality. Um, the fact that we rebel against a holy God, as we've seen in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, um, that reality is, is a timeless 
universal truth for every single uh, human being that, that will come uh, on the face of this earth. They will rebel and they will have a sin nature. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The sin of Adam and Eve in the garden is passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so uh, we often see these uh, generational sins uh, being passed on. And we all then are plagued with this curse of sin. We n- None of us can uh, skirt that reality. None of us can avoid uh, that plague of, of sin, we're all in that same predicament, right? So you don't have to look too far uh, in your own personal life to see the reality of sin, do we not? And again, this is a, a timeless truth that calls out to every generation from Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse number 10, none is righteous, no, not even one. Uh, so just this past week, uh, as you saw the headlines in the news, um, Our hearts are broken uh, by the ugliness of sin. Uh, We've seen um, a father and a son uh, senselessly lynch an African-American young man who was simply jogging through his neighborhood. Uh, That is the presence of sin. This is systemic racism. This is sin. This is uh, a learned behavior being passed on from father to son. The sins of a generation being passed on. The beautiful reality is that God is still in the business of redemption and reconciliation. So although generational sins do revisit um, from time to time, we do have hope that we're not defined by the sins of our father. We see this often um, in the book of, of Jeremiah and Isaiah, we have um, repentance and then we have failure and we have repentance and we have failure. Uh, we ultimately can break um, a, a path of a generational sin by God's grace, Christ. And by his grace, we can place our faith in that finished work on the cross and receive salvation from those very sins that once defined us. The message of the Bible is this. That those generational sins, the sins of our fathers, our own sin for that matter, can be broken by the power of the gospel. And so this morning, by way of introduction, uh, my heart is is heavy uh, coming to this this passage of scripture as we see Isaac um, following after the pattern of his father, uh, Abraham, and repeating some of the sins that uh, maybe he heard of or observed in Abraham and son way or by way of just the sin nature repeating itself in, in similar ways in the life of, of Isaac. But friends, um, we must come to grips this morning with a very important reality um, that our only hope must be placed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, as I also um, read it through a Twitter feed and, and Facebook posts as I read through news headlines. Uh, it's apparent that even American Christians are placing their hope in other things outside of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to come to grips with the reality this morning that there is no political ideology that can give us hope. Capitalism, the Bill of Rights, 
the Declaration of Independence, as great as it is, uh, more legislation or less legislation, depending on uh, your political viewpoint, control over the House, control over the Senate, appointment of conservative Supreme Court justices. None of these are the answers to the problem of sin, friends. And so I would encourage us as we have an opportunity to look into Genesis chapter number 26 and to consider Abraham's life and to consider uh, even how that sin nature is repeated in the life of Isaac, but also place our hope and our gaze on the finished work of Jesus. And remember that we serve a God that is faithful to us despite ourselves. Let us let go of false hopes. Let us quit running to, to politics for our hope. Let us quit running to worldly wisdom for our hope. And let us recalibrate by God's grace, our hearts and our minds back to the firm foundation, the hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that as the world looks on and as we communicate potentially with our lips, the message of Jesus, that the actions of our lives don't always match up with the message that we uh, proclaim to believe and to preach. There's a conflict. There's an inconsistency that we must come to grips with even this morning. I'm afraid that the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in recent days for many of us uh, wouldn't make the top spot of the priorities in our life. Why is that? Because although we may have received grace, through faith, that free gift of salvation, we may not be actively walking in the spirit from day to day. Maybe in these uncertain times, we've slipped back to following our own understanding. Galatians tells us that if we are not walking in the spirit, we will gratify the desires of our flesh, which is essentially defaulting to our sin nature. So this morning, as we continue to work our way through this expositional study through the book of Genesis, we will once again observe uh, a moment in a series of events that will occur specifically in the life of Isaac as a result of him, of him taking his eyes off of the Lord at moments, giving into his fears and uncertainties. And in the process, Isaac will repeat again, a very familiar sin of his father, Abraham. So if you remember with me back to the title of our message, it's this, God's faithfulness to Isaac. We continue to observe chapter after chapter in the book of Genesis that despite the inconsistencies, the inadequacies, the glaring failures of mankind, God continues to do what he continues through this covenant relationship that he established with Abraham and that is now passed on and reaffirmed right here in chapter number 26 with Isaac. So with that context and introduction in mind, what's the big idea of our message this morning? It's this, because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He leads and directs our lives despite our imperfect faith. Again, the big idea of our message this morning is because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He leads and directs our lives despite our imperfect faith. So this morning, we're going to look at just 
three simple observations that we see in this passage as we consider God's faithfulness to Isaac. The first point is this. God is faithful to Isaac in the midst of uncertain circumstances. God is faithful to Isaac in the midst of uncertain circumstances. Chapter 26 is unique in that uh, this really is the only chapter that we have specifically about uh, the life of Isaac. Um, He's mentioned in other passages, but we don't get a lot of detail about his life and how he lived and interacted with other people. Um, He's more of a a bystander to another theme or story or characters that would be introduced and presented. So chapter 26 is really the bulk or the heart of what we know uh, specifically about the life of of Isaac. Um, But as we noted in previous weeks, uh, Pastor Dave uh, mentioned this, I mentioned this last week as well, that this chapter, although having some some main characters, that being Isaac specifically in chapter 26, this chapter really isn't about Isaac. It's about God. We will observe God fully establish and extend this covenant relationship with Isaac. But we also see that being in covenant relationship with God does not equate to perfection on the side of Isaac. So let's set some context here uh, for chapter number 26. Are are you with me there in in Genesis chapter number 26? The context is, is this. It's clear from verse number one, which reads this. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So here we have in verse number one, there was a famine that has struck the land. And Isaac, similar to that of his father, looks to travel into Egypt to find relief from the famine. We see this in in, uh, verse number two, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So Isaac would desire to be finding relief from this famine and it's often known that Egypt would have been a a plentiful and bountiful land. So he would have naturally taken his uh, his household and traveled down in into Egypt. But instead, Isaac ends up traveling to Gerar. And if you'll remember uh, the geography that we've pointed out previously, uh, this would have been in the territory of the Negev. Essentially, it just would have been just to the west of the Dead Sea. And that would have really continued west until the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So we have between the Dead Sea all the way over to the coast of the Mediterranean. This is where um, King Abimelech and this territory, the Negev, uh, would have been present, right? And so Beersheba would be basically right in the middle between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. And Gerar would have been just a, a hair further west into the north of Beersheba. So we're kind of right in that geographical area. I apologize. I didn't grab a a, a map, but hopefully you can picture that in, in your mind as you might be familiar with uh, with that area. So here Isaac is in Canaan, right? It's a foreign land. Famine again has, has struck and he's seeking relief and, and answers to these uncertain times that he finds himself, right? So these uncertain circumstances are heavy. It's It's a burden to Isaac and he's finding or attempting to find a path forward. So verse number two, Again, the Lord appears to him and reminds him of the promises that he, meaning God, 
is initiating with Isaac. He tells him, don't go to Egypt, rather dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Verse number three goes on, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. It's interesting in these few verses, specifically verses three and four, that we see these words, I will. Uh, I love these words, I will. Uh, Four times in just two verses. These two words, I will, are so very significant. For it's in this phrase, I will, um, that it describes the simplicity and the reality of this covenant relationship between God and Abraham and that now being passed on to to Isaac. It's all about God and his glory. You see there in verse number three, I will be with you and will bless you. I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. It's all about God and his glory, friends. It it was nothing that Isaac did. In fact, as we will observe later in this chapter, this relationship was initiated and sustained despite Isaac and his actions. Again, as we also observed in previous chapters in the life of Abraham. Friends, if there is ever a takeaway for us in this passage, it's right here. We serve the same God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, that's represented right here in the pages of this book of Genesis. And this God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we can observe in Genesis this simple but yet profound truth that it is God who initiates his covenant relationship, then how can we come to any other conclusion that it is anything or anyone else other than God who initiates a relationship with us through his son, Christ Jesus? This is the beautiful reality of the doctrine of election. This is why Peter tells us in chapter one uh, of his second letter to make our calling and election sure. Why? Because there is, there is a calling of us from the Lord to himself, initiated only by God. What an incredible measure of grace we see here in the life of Isaac, don't we? This is why we hold fast to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I mentioned my uh, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, my namesake, Eric Curtis, uh, passing away at, at the age of 41 from a massive heart attack. And my mom, um, it just happened to be that my mom was traveling uh, through Arizona last week to pick up my grandma and uh, to help her journey back uh, to South Dakota for, for the summer months. And she stopped by, my mom did in Arizona, my uh, grandpa Eric's grave. And on that headstone were these verses of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And, and so I've been meditating on, on these verses these week, this week, and it, I couldn't help but think of them as I was going through this passage and seeing the sovereignty of God and him initiating this relationship 
all the way back with Abraham, but also extending that to Isaac and reinitiating and reaffirming that covenant relationship with Isaac once again. Uh, and, and it's this verse in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is nothing that I could do on my own. A relationship with God can only be initiated, sustained, and maintained and persevered over the course of time for all eternity by God himself. This is the Lord's doing right here in chapter 26. And it's certainly the Lord's doing now as he continues to draw sinners like Isaac that we see here in 26, sinners like myself and sinners like you, as he draws them to himself and calls them to repentance and fellowship of himself. So what is what is God doing here in these first few views, these first few verses, excuse me. In the midst of these uncertain circumstances, God is providing Isaac a foundation struggle that he finds himself in. This too is is temporary. It will come to pass. And just as Abraham saw the faithfulness of God in his day, God of the Bible is reminding Isaac that he will be faithful to him as well. And if he's faithful to Abraham and he's faithful to Isaac, he certainly will be faithful to us in our own relationship to him. I know we have loved very much and enjoyed meditating on that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Um, I love that my kids are starting to pick up on many of these songs. They'll often um, be skipping through the house or outside or playing with their dolls or toys in the room. And I'll be uh, walking down the hall and I'll hear them singing, he will hold me fast. And in that song, there's a phrase, when I think my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. We have a sure and steady anchor. We have a rock. We have eagle's wings that we can run under and be safe and have shelter in um, the time of our storm of life. And so this promise, this covenant relationship that God is reminding Isaac of, it serves as a foundation of hope. It's interesting, isn't it, as we continue to to read on verse number five, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. It's interesting to see the Lord's testimony of Abraham, Isaac's father, in verse number five. In the midst of Abraham's imperfect faith, what has God done in the life of Abraham? Yahweh sustains the faith of Abraham and by his grace allows an established testimony of obedience and fellowship of the Lord to be established. This is what Abraham is known for. Despite the failures that we have observed over the life of Abraham, he is known as a man of faith recorded in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter number 11. I believe it's also interesting to note that this testimony of faithfulness was not just for Isaac's day, but it's uh, incredible to think that now thousands of years later, we too have the benefit of observing the Lord in his character to be faithful, to fulfill his promises. Yes, even in the midst of of uncertain circumstances. Wow, what a, what a timely message for our day, is it not? The 
question for you this morning. Are you actively believing in and trusting in this fundamental and biblical truth that God is faithful to his people in the midst of uncertain circumstances? Do you believe that? Are you resting in that? Are you hoping in that? Are you acting on that truth and that reality in your life? Or are you giving into fear? Are you giving into the uncertain circumstances? Again, we've reminded ourselves over and over and over again through this Genesis series that circumstances don't define our joy. We can rest in and we can hope in. And we can believe once again, even in the midst of uncertainty. Why? Because we have a God that is faithful. And it's when we're at the end of our rope. It's when the uncertain circumstances are the heaviest that God's faithfulness is the strongest. So friends, let's remember that truth and that reality this morning. So God is Faithful to Isaac in the midst of uncertain circumstances. This brings us to our second observation this morning. God is faithful to Isaac despite his attempts to manipulate his circumstances. God is faithful to Isaac despite his attempts to manipulate his circumstances. So here we have on the heels of this incredible declaration of hope for Isaac. We find him now settled in at Gerar, and the Philistines now inquire about his wife. What is Isaac's response? Let's read in verse number six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Why did he say that? For he feared to say, my wife thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. What was Isaac's response to this questioning of their relationship? He succumbs to fear. And where does that fear take Isaac? This fear leads Isaac to ultimately lying concerning his relationship with Rebecca. God has already declared that these lands, the lands that he is uh, dwelling in right now, the land of the people that are inquiring to him concerning his relationship with Rebekah, God has already declared that these lands, the land of the Philistines, Canaan, would be given to him and his offspring from the Lord. So I I just find it interesting from, from a logical standpoint, how can God give Isaac these lands if that same God allows the Philistines to kill Isaac, right? So even just from a logical sense, he's already forgetting this hope and this promise that God has just communicated to him that he will be faithful to bring about. But logic aside, we learned last week that in the sovereignty of God, whatever the Lord establishes, it will come to pass. Whatever the Lord establishes, it will always come to pass just as he said it would. So in reality, Isaac had nothing to fear, but can we not resonate with and empathize a bit with the weight of fear? Satan uses fear in our life to blind us from the truth 
of God's word, the truth of God's revealed word to us that we should be running to in the midst of our uncertain times. But we have the weakness of our flesh. We have spiritual warfare in our midst and fear can be a crippling emotion for us to rest on. Fear is dangerous. Ultimately, it is it has drawn Isaac into a direct lie and deceit and dishonesty. So Isaac had nothing to fear. But ultimately, fear is real. Fear speaks lies into the truth of God's word. Where God says there is hope, fear says we need to despair. Where hope would say, and God's promises would say, you have a sure and steady anchor. Fear would say, God is a liar. He's forsaken you. So Isaac, in his frail human state, is, is grappling with, with fear right now. Fear is powerful. And a left unchecked will always cause us to act outside of the promises of God. Let me say that one more time. Fear is powerful. And if left unchecked, will always cause us to act outside of the promises of God. So look with me at verse number eight, as this scheme of Isaac progresses. Verse number eight of chapter 26. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. It's noted here that Isaac had been here a long time. We don't know how long. Uh, again, the chronology of this chapter is um, uncertain. Um, but we know just what it says. He, he's been here a while. He's been here a long time. time. Maybe his guard has gone down a bit. Uh, maybe he gets too comfortable. Um, whatever the course may be, right? When we uh, introduce a lie into a relationship, it's inevitable that that lie is going to catch up to us, right? We have to uh, create one lie to cover another. And it's just this tangled web of, of deceit and uncertainty. And ultimately those spinning plates of all the manipulation that we try to uh, uphold ultimately comes crashing down, right? And And there's this time of exposure. And ultimately that's what we have here. We have a point of exposure in the life of Isaac. And Isaac and Rebecca are described here as laughing together. I won't go into all the nuances of this verb this morning um, that's ultimately translated right here in chapter 26 as laughing, but this word and this verb often carries with it an intimate context. And Abimelech sees Isaac and, and Sarah in this moment, and he draws a conclusion that this surely is no brother and sister relationship. And King Abimelech calls out Isaac and says, behold, she is your wife in verse number nine. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. We don't know exactly how many years, again, have passed since Abraham's last run-in with King Abimelech. It's possible, based off study, that this is the same King Abimelech that interacted with um, Abraham, but it's likely that it's probably one of his sons that have just carried on the name 
regardless of whether it was the original King Abimelech or whether it was one of his sons, um, you can remember back with me uh, to chapter number 20. God calls the king in that passage a dead man, literally uses those words a dead man. Why? Because he took Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham lied to King Abimelech and said that Sarah was his sister all the way back in chapter 20. So this scheme, this deceitfulness that Abraham established then again is now revisiting itself in the life of his son, Isaac. So maybe this memory of the deceit of Abraham has been passed on. But regardless, the the current king takes swift action in verse number 11. Look with me there. Verse number 11 reads this. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So he takes this swift action and this exposure of Isaac's sin allows him to come out from the shadows of his deceit. It's here that we observe the promises that were given in the first few verses really come to fruition as verses 12 through 16 describe an extended season of blessing in Isaac's life. There's prosperity. There's, there's peace. The uncertainty of the famine uh, has, has passed at this point. Uh, he's now been uh, in, in the kingdom of Abimelech for quite some time. His, his uh, sin and his scheming and deceit has been exposed. And now we have uh, verse number 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Verse number 16 finishes out this season of of blessing and um, bountiful harvest. Verse number 16, and Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. This prosperity, this blessing, this success is being looked upon by King Abimelech. King Abimelech is realizing that Isaac is becoming a very wealthy and successful man. So what does he do? He he takes notice and in acting in his own fear, maybe fear of his own rule and reign and authority being at risk, he decides to do what in verse 16? To create some space between Isaac and his kingdom. So he sends him away from his immediate proximity. And so where does Isaac settle? He settles down in the valley of Gerar. So we have up until this point, we've seen that God is faithful in the midst of uncertain circumstances. In our second observation, we saw that God was faithful to Isaac despite his attempt to manipulate his circumstances. And thirdly and finally, we're going to observe that God is faithful to Isaac in bringing peace to contentious circumstances. God is faithful. God is faithful to bring peace to contentious circumstances. So Isaac attempts to settle again in the Valley of Gerar. He opens back up the wells that Abraham dug. There's a lot of speculation why these wells were were filled in 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 these uh, verses to follow, but some say it had spiritual significance, um, highlighting the pagan identity of the Philistines and um, potentially them wanting to 
fill up or discount or discredit the work of the Lord and what those wells ultimately stood for uh, in their relationship to Abraham and his blessing and relationship. Most likely, there is a pragmatic element to these wells being filled up. These um, would have been cut down on the nomadic travels as people would have been drawn in that area to these wells and King Abimelech would want to somewhat uh, throttle some of that traffic that would be going in and out of, of his kingdom and his reign. But regardless of, of the purpose of these wells being filled up, we have a series of three wells uh, that were dug by Isaac and his servants. The first two were met with opposition and the third ultimately has uh, very much a positive connotation uh, associated with it. Uh, the first is um, Isaac in verse number 20. Uh, let's read that. Verse number 20, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac. This literally, this word Isaac literally means contention. And so uh, Isaac rightly and appropriately went ahead and named uh, this well by what it represented in his relationship and uh, the contention that was present with this well. Verse number 21. They dig another well and they call it Sitna, uh, meaning enmity, as it is also met with op- opposition from these, these herdsmen uh, out of King Abimelech's rule. Finally, verse number 22, uh, let's read that together. And then he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us. And we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth meaning broad places or room. For the herdsmen of the king did not dispute this well. So finally, there's an element of, of a peace. They're no longer being heckled about this resource and the ownership of this well and this resource of water. And so he rightly names this, hey, we now have some elbow room. We have some space where we're not being bombarded with this opposition and this contention, this enmity. So we see peace settling in. It's interesting to note Isaac's disposition in the midst of these points of opposition over these wells. Abraham seemed to be much more bold in resolving these disputes. Abraham said, I dug this will and I'll prove it by uh, by way of a covenant or an oath, and he would sign that with those the seven ewe lambs that were offered to Abimelech as a sign of proof for him uh, digging that well and his ownership of it. Now, Isaac, on the other hand, was um, potentially more uh, peaceful in his disposition. If there was contention, he simply um, was fine with moving on and finding another location and then moving on and finding another location again. And ultimately finding uh, this this well at Rehoboth and, and having uh, the peace that is settled there. So Isaac is described once again as being fruitful in the land. And he decides to do what? He goes up to Beersheba, uh, where the Lord once again appears to Isaac. Uh, this has much significant uh, spiritual significance in both the life of Abraham and now in, in Isaac. And the Lord appears to him right here in chapter number 26 as he moves up. Uh, to Beersheba. And ultimately, what happens there? What's communicated uh, from the Lord 
to Isaac. Ultimately, the Lord reminds him once again of his faithfulness to fulfill his promises in the life of Isaac. He's recalibrating his mind and his heart away from this contention, away from these disputes over these wells. And once again, he's drawing him to that firm foundation on who God is. I love this. What was Isaac's response to this word of the Lord at Beersheba? His response was ultimately worship. Look at me in verse number 23. For there he went up to Beersheba, verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I'm with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So he worships the Lord. He builds an altar in verse number 25 and calls on the name of the Lord. What else does he do? He seems to back to chapter number 21, 21 excuse me. Beersheba, again, was the place of Abraham and Abimelech's original treaty between these two households. Again, Abraham, as I mentioned just briefly, gives the king these seven ewe lambs. And if we look at the etymology of this word Beersheba, we see that the Hebrew word Mishpah literally meant to bind one's self by staking or pledging seven things. And in Abraham's case, as a herdsman, and appropriately, he offers seven ewe lambs. Therefore, this place was now referred to as Beersheba, meaning the well of swearing, or literally the well of seven, to represent this, this covenant, this treaty, this oath between Abraham and King Abimelech. There's no accidents or coincidences in God's kingdom and economy. I'm sure that this was providential timing as the Lord reminded Isaac of his covenant promises right there in 23, 24, and 25. The king is on his way, and he's going to meet him here at Beersheba. So Isaac, in meeting the king in verse number 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? So Isaac asked a very direct question. And the response the king has is very telling. Verse number 28, how does King Abimelech respond? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be sworn a pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. So the question that Isaac poses to King Abimelech ties back to verse number 16. Do you remember? And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. King Abimelech sent him away in in envy and fear, potentially, of what Isaac had been able to accumulate by way of resources and riches. And what was their response? Again, 
the testimony of Isaac's life in the midst of uncertain circumstances, despite his desire to attempt to manipulate his circumstances, King Abimelech, as he sent him away, the testimony of Isaac was simply this. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. It's interesting, isn't it, that these men ascribe the wealth and success that Isaac has experienced back to the God of Abraham. Verse 29, let's read it. And that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So verse 29, King Abimelech goes a step further and seems to acknowledge, at least in some cursory understanding of this unique covenant relationship that has now been passed on from Abraham onto Isaac. He states, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Isaac responds with this testimony, understands their motive and purpose for coming. And what does he do? He receives these men. He made a feast in verse 30. And they ate and drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. In peace. So he prepares a feast. They eat and drink and dine together. They exchange these oaths, these covenants, these treaties, and ultimately in the morning they depart from him in peace. I love these next couple of verses as a sign of sorts to the faithfulness of God in the midst of these contentious circumstances. What do his servants report back upon the departure of uh, Abimelech? The sign of sustenance, the sign of provision. Once again, in the spirit of peace, the Lord has been faithful in the midst of what could have escalated quickly in the midst of these contentious circumstances. We found water, verse 33, he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This chapter ends um, with what could be considered a a transitional statement concerning the life of, of Esau. We're gonna hear much much more about Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Rebekah, and all these twisted and difficult relationships that are going to be present in this household. Um, But these final couple verses here, when Esau was 40 years old, verse 34, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. These final couple verses, they serve as a reminder of the continued contention that will remain between Esau and his parents. Particularly Esau is choosing uh, spouses uh, within his household that he would have known would have been against the will of particularly Isaac and Rebekah. We know ultimately that Isaac um, encouraged Jacob to, to go and um, uh, get a wife from their, their land, their homeland, just as um, Abraham would do, right, uh, for, for Isaac. 
And so we have this constant reminder of Esau willfully acting outside of not only his parents' will, but also the will of the Lord. And as a result, this would be a source of contention uh, between Esau and his parents. In the midst of all this, again, what is our takeaway? God's faithfulness. Circumstances of chapter number 27 will continue to escalate as Pastor Andy will take us through uh, this chapter and remind us of, again, our sin nature and all the struggles that we'll see present there. Uh, But until then, in chapter 26, we need to remind ourselves of these three important observations that God is faithful to Isaac and as such, he's faithful to us in the midst of uncertain circumstances. Secondly, we Observe that God is faithful to Isaac, and as such, he will be faithful to us despite his and our attempts to many times manipulate our circumstances, to insert our own will, our own authority over the things that are going on in our life. And finally, we observe that God is faithful to Isaac, and as such, he is faithful to us and will be faithful to us in the days ahead in bringing peace to contentious circumstances. We may never find true, settled, 100% peace on this earth, but we certainly are promised peace for our weary and restless souls. God has provided peace when we were in contention with the Lord. Our rebellion, our sin is in enmity with God. But God, being rich in mercy, provided Jesus Christ. And by his grace, we can be saved through faith. And this morning, let us remember the faithfulness of God to Isaac. And let's remember as such that God will be faithful to us, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what we're going through, no matter what our heart, our life, or the world around us will tell us, that we can take it to the bank. We can be sure that God will remain faithful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning again that you are God, that you are on your throne, that you are sovereign over all things, and that we can look to you and find help in our time of need. Father, we thank you that when we are uncertain, when we lack wisdom, when we feel our faith is is failing, um, we can trust. Father, I pray that you would take the truths that were presented in Genesis chapter number 26 and that you would plant them deep in our heart. And as we go throughout this week, we would remember your faithfulness when we don't feel like believing. That we would remember your faithfulness when the circumstances around us are such a heavy burden that we would run to you and remember that you are a faithful God. You are a good God. Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.